If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast all in one place. They have tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. So download the Anchor app on Apple or Android or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Now back to the good part. Welcome to a premiere episode of the Foundry Corner Podcast. My name is Curtis Wilson, along with my co-host Brian Ziegler. Hello, hello. Before we kind of dive into everything we're going to kind of do on this podcast, um, we want to kind of give a little background of uh, who we are and uh, how the show came about. Um, me and Brian grew up together in Halifax County, Virginia, which is a little small country county down in the southern part of the state, um, middle school, high school, even college at Longwood together, um, and now we both live in uh, the RVA. Uh, Worked together for a little while, too. two years ago, <laughs> long, oh yeah, what, yes, five sir. years? Yes, sir. Craziness. So, uh, you know, so we've known each other a long time, um, and about two years ago, we kind of started knocking around this idea of doing a hokey podcast. Um, yeah, but you know, kind of life happened. We both got kids, Brian moving away from RVA for a couple of years, moving back, jobs, adulting. It sucks. Um, but now, well, it's actually going to happen. So we're pretty excited to uh, do this and kind of give our view on uh, hokey football as well as, as well as the ACC and college football kind of as a whole. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give my background as like as a fan that I am, um, I consider myself a Hokie fan of really 25 years. My first vivid memory of the Virginia Tech football program is 1995. New Year's Eve, watching the Sugar Bowl with Jim Druckenmiller, Kenny Oxendine, um, Brian Still in that punt return. I, I get chills thinking about it. Antonio Banks on defense. And I, I fell in love with it. You know, it was a school up the road from where I grew up, and it was Virginia players. And, you know, over the course of the last 25 years, having friends go there and getting to go to games and slowly ingraining and watching more and more, um, it, it's, it's probably the thing I've watched and follow the most of any sport. Um, now, Brian, you've got even a better background than me concerning football, um, but you got some fandom too. In you. I definitely have some fandom in me too. Um, <clears throat> I'll start with the fandom. Um, I was a Hokie fan pretty much about the same time Curtis started '95. It really took off, um, you know, with with the magical uh, run to the national championship. That really kind of took things to the next level for me. Um, one of the the most vivid memories I have of that actually, um, I didn't get a chance to go to a game that year. But my high school football coach, as an end-of-year 
uh, treat to uh, us. I was playing varsity for the first time that year. And he actually took us to a UVA game, ironically, and they were showing a bunch of uh, the um, highlights from the Tech game, and I was kind of trolling some of the, the UVA fans on the hill there. So that was kind of my, yes, my sir. introduction to <laughs> to the Hokie fandom and to the rivalry with UVA. So that's kind of where it all started with me. And as far as background of, of my football life. Um, <clears throat> I played football for from when I was eight till I was 21. Um, and then I did some coaching as well. So little league, uh, middle school, high school was a captain of the high school team, uh, played division three football at Hayden of Sydney, uh, offensive lineman guard, but I did, I did play a little bit of center there too, uh, in a pinch. Um, then uh, from there, coached uh, defensive line at J.R. Tucker for a couple of years um, in, uh, in Rico in the 804. And again, still back here in the 804 now. So that's kind of kind of my background and, and my history, both with the fandom and, uh, and football in general and some of the credentials that I bring to the table. Um, yeah, I'll go I'll go from there just saying kind of what we what we want this podcast to be and what we don't want it to be. Um, the biggest thing we don't want it to be. And really, there's two things we don't want it to be. We don't want it to just be a podcast where we cast everything that the Hokies do as a ray of sunshine. There are going to be things that are not good, that we don't like, that we'd like to see improvements on, that we'd like to um, move forward on. Um, at the same time, I'm not going to yell fire food the first time we have a loss or the first time you know, a, a recruit flips on us or we miss out on a four or five star in-state guy. So I'm not going to be that guy, but I'm also not going to be the guy that's going to, um, you know, shine, sunshine up your ass every time, you know, things are rough as well. So that's kind of what we, what we don't want to be. Um, what we do want to be is I think, you know, balancing the good and the bad, put it into perspective for the program and kind of relate all of that to the landscape of what the ACC and what college football is in general right now. And, uh, and just have fun with it. Talk Hokies, talk recruits, talk some of the, uh, the more important um, games and just have fun with it. I think we also want to bring our unique points of view to the table. Um, you know, we'll give you the fan perspective. We're also going to occasionally do, a little bit of a dive into X and O's for some of you, uh, you football nerds out there. Well, yeah, and I'm definitely a football nerd. And what you guys are also going to hear is this is me and Brian's conversation almost on a daily basis. Uh, you know, phone calls, texts, emails, tweets back and forth. This is who we are. You know, don't ever, ever look at our text chain starting on a game day. Oh, my God, you'd be there for seven hours. It starts early I mean, and often, I'm saying man, early and often. It does. Early and often. And then I'm trying to say, Brian, why the hell did we just do that on third down? And he gives a reasonable explanation, and I have to stop typing <laughs> for like five minutes. But, uh, Brian, let's do a quick um, – let you go ahead and document and uh, highlight what we're going to be looking at in this premiere episode. Yeah, that, that'll, that'll be a good place to start. So, first thing we're going to focus on um, is – 2020 roster and recruiting and really recruiting in general, um, looking primarily at the 2020 class, but kind of filling in some of the, some of the holes that will, uh, will explain what's going on with that 2020 class. 
Um, you know, I'm also going to probably highlight some of those uh, potential instant impact guys that we might be looking at this year, um, even with a small class, and maybe some other freshmen to watch that might be an impact in the future. And um, since we're on that subject, we're going to talk about the transfer portal. That's kind of the, the bugaboo for everyone right now, not just us. So we'll talk about that, how it's impacting college sports, how it's impacting high school recruits, and, uh, and also take a look at some of the guys we've actually picked up as, uh, as grad transfers and as transfers in general for this year. Awesome. Well, let, let's start with this. Um, the first thing I want to look at today and kind of discuss is the actual class size of the Hokies 2020 class size. Just everybody finally signed yesterday with uh, capturing Dylan Wright out of South Carolina, our last pickup. But in terms of class size, this is maybe one of the smallest Hokie classes since I've been a fan um, and recruiting has been at the forefront of me following um, we only got 15 commits, um, yeah, which yeah. is significant. <laughs> really small. Literally, we are the smallest class tied with Boston College um, this year. Um, you know, and not the most impressive class, um, but it wasn't like we were out there just not giving offers. Uh, Brian, I know we discussed there were some guys we, we really – some high-profile targets we missed on. Um, so I know you've done a little research. Uh, who are these guys you looked at that we really we tried to get, but essentially we swung and missed? I mean, the biggest two are going to be Chris Tyree, Thomas Dale, the 804, and then you've got DeAndre Lambert from the 757. I mean, those are the two big targets we were looking at in-state. I mean, really, there wasn't a lot of big talent in-state this year. Um, we look at, I mean, four- and five-star talent in-state. There's only six guys. Um, so we targeted two of those, swung and missed. Um, it didn't help that Penn State was thin at wide receiver, and they've also had since then even some some guys that at that position hit the portal. Um, so that coupled with, you know, at the time, what was our uh, uh, massive depth at wide receiver, I could see why he thought that that might be a, a good way to go. And, you know, Tyree ended up at, uh, at Notre Dame. It seemed like that was kind of where he was heading for a good while there. They took the lead early and, uh, and closed the deal for him. So I think that was two that we, we, we took a shot at, but I don't know if we ever really had a shot at Tyree. And I don't think that with what happened at Penn State that we were going to do enough to, to convince uh, Keanu. I mean, I mean, are you seeing these or I mean, just kind of what you're saying, I don't think you're saying this is an indictment on what we did recruiting wise as to more of it's situational. You know, even with the losses of the wide receiver, we're still deep wide receiver. Yeah, we we still end up getting, (laughs) uh, I think, Lakeem Rudolph is the third or fourth best uh, wide receiver in the state. So we still brought him in. Um, We went out and got. Uh, you know, Tyree Saunders, I, I, like I said, I'm going to go over this a little bit more later when we talk X's and O's, but um, Tyree Saunders and Dallin Wright. So, I mean, it's not like we didn't do our diligence in the, at that position. It's just circumstantially we weren't able to get the best guy on the board in the state. And that happens sometimes. Um, what I want to look at, just so everybody, so Pokey Nation, don't get scared. This is a small class. It's a one-off because what we need to look at is do some history. You know, we take a look at our last three recruiting classes. Um, they've been pretty large. Um, 2019, 
23 commitments, 2018, 26 commitments, 2017, also 26 commitments. Um, you do the quick math, uh, you know, that's like right at what, 75 recruits. Yeah. So that, that's a lot of guys already in it. I know some guys have left and whatnot. We, we um, were expecting attrition regardless, just based on those three classes. Exactly. And that was also going to make this class by default smaller than your average class as well. Yeah, smaller than your average class. And something I want to do, we're going to go into 2019 in a few minutes here about actually the productivity of that class. But I want to just, we're just going to take a quick look at the other two classes I just mentioned. 2017 this year, some of the big contributors. Um, there's a guy named Hendon Hooker. Uh, yeah, big contributor. You had Taiwan Garbert, who was rotating in that end. He's a redshirt sophomore, um, rotating in a defensive end. Silas Danzi and Ludica Smith, really part of building our offensive line this year, um, along with the absolute stud left tackle Christian Darasaw. They were all part of that 2017 class, along with the man in the middle, Rayshard Ashby, the guy who was a five-time linebacker of the week for the ACC but doesn't get first-team linebacker. You explain that one to me, Brian. Um, well, I can't. But then, <laughs> I won't even try to, man. I won't even try to. Like what? Uh, but then, you know, same with 2018. So, that's a, you know, I just named right there six contributors from 2017. 2018, man, you're talking about really the heart of this team in general. You had Dax Hollyfield who's starting at backer, Trey Turner, um, the best wide receiver we have, um, Chamari Connor, who literally went out his sophomore year and took the nickel spot away from Khalil Ladler, an upperclassman who, by all means, had never had played bad. Yeah. Um, Alan Tisdale rotating in um, at those linebacker positions with Ray Shard and Dax. Um, and then we take a look at, you know, Big Stone Gap, James Mitchell. What a mm. difference maker he was this year, man, as a sophomore. Um, and then Armani Chapman, you know, we, we saw him get burned a few times, but we felt comfortable with Armani coming in there, you know, giving Jermaine and Caleb Farley breathers, right? Uh, Javon Beckton, same way it ends, rotating in, solid reps. And then, you know, Luke Tenuta holding down the right side. And the aforementioned, one of the best covered corners in the league, Jermaine Waller, was a sophomore. Yeah. We're, that, Brian, just, just kind of go through a, a – People are mad about being eight and five, but then I just named primarily redshirt sophomores, sophomores, and redshirt freshmen as some of our biggest contributors. I mean, I, I think he, he, people are right to be frustrated with eight and five. I don't think they're right to be frustrated only because we're eight and five. I mean, there are certainly cir- circumstances out there that people can point to and be frustrated with. But I don't think recruiting and the talent that we have on the roster is one of them. I mean, general youth is contributing to some of that inconsistency that we're seeing. And I think the inconsistency is what's hurting us most in the game is that we'll go out and we'll have these good runs and then we'll make a couple mistakes. And those mistakes are sometimes backbreakers. So I think, I mean... As they're going to get older, they're going to be more consistent with their play. They're going to be smarter. They'll be able to play fast while being smart, and that's the biggest thing is that early in the season, what I was seeing is some of those guys that were still young thinking a lot and playing slow. And after Duke, they weren't doing that anymore, at least not as much. And I think that that was a big switch at some point. I don't know what what Foo said or did on his end to help with that, but 
I think that was the biggest contributing factor there. Yeah, definitely, definitely something changed inside the program with that. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to go here, and now, to me, this is, as a Hokie fan, this is unacceptable. Our class ranking this year, we were 70th. We were literally, I think, the worst ACC team. Yeah. And this is all 247, folks. That's who I go to. Um, I respect what those guys do. I follow Barton Simmons. He's literally one of the heads of that. Really smart guy. Um, so this is where you're getting the rankings info from us. Um, but we were 70th. Um, this is not a good look. Um, regardless, uh, you know, but I mean, what do you think? To me, it's a terrible look. It's like you're one of the worst recruiting classes. It's a terrible look. Class. And the biggest thing is that, again, we go back to those swings and misses on some of those in-state guys. If we're, if we're swinging out and getting, um, we're swinging out and getting those two guys on top of bringing in, um, an Alec Bryan and a Robert Wooden, um, yeah. you know, you're not talking about the same scenario because you're probably talking about, you know, somewhere around 10, 11 in the ACC. And given the small class size, you can explain away some of that. But, you know, I think the biggest thing with, with this recruiting class is that there there are some guys that are going to still show you something from this class. I think the, the problem is, is that we didn't hit on some of those higher name guys that we wanted to hit. And it, and it really hurt us in the rankings. And it really hurt us, I think, perception-wise – given some of the other problems we've had both last year, some this year, and then after, um, we'll call this after Baylor, um, <laughs> just perception-wise. I, I think, you know, they're, they're, when, when you're already in your feelings a little bit, every everything matters, and this is one of those other things that matter. Nice. And, and we said it before, too. Another thing, probably for the low ranking, you, know, you talk about missing on guys, but when you have a ton of, sophomores, freshmen occupying starting positions, primary contributor positions, really tough to go up and walk to a guy and promise him things when, you know, he can see the writing on the wall to say, hey, man, you know, you know, I'm an inside linebacker. Oh, great. We'd love to have you. You're probably not starting for three years <laughs> just because of how deep we are yeah. in that position. And, 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 I'm, and before we had the departure from, what, from Pink and uh, – and Hayes, I think you're going to say the same thing at wide receiver, which I think is what scared uh, scared Lambert away, especially since Penn State was having the opposite problem. Yeah, um, you know, having guys exactly. that were playing that weren't up to snuff and having very very thin um, uh, guys behind them. So, you know, that definitely contributed to him going going up to uh, Happy Valley there. So, exactly. All right, we're going to move on. Just so you guys know, I don't think this is what we're going to see from this program going forward. Um, 2021, excuse me, is already looking um, like potentially, potentially the best recruiting, <laughs> potentially the best recruiting class in program history. You know, Demaris Davis out of Texas already committing um, top quarterback in the country. But I just want everybody to calm down. You saw 70. Just remember – 2019, we were the 26th ranked program recruiting-wise in the country. 2018-24, 2017-26. I know that's probably not where we all want to be. We probably would like to see top 10 classes, but understand that we were in a transition process, and I, and I think people are, are, are not giving that due diligence of the transition process we were in. 
we were going from a legend who went out on good terms and we had a head coach come in and his people want to, if you want to light up through, that's fine for what he does wrong. The one thing he never did is he never tried to trounce Frank Beamer's legacy. He never has. If anything, he's added on to it with the 25, um, the one and some of the other stuff he's done, even with Bud being there, he respected that. And, and, and maybe that's why it's taken a few cycles to get his vision because he did have such respect. Yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping that we start seeing some of that vision and, and that payoff, um, especially this season. I feel like with, with the amount of talent we have coming back, and again, as you highlighted, 26, 24, 26, um, you know, rankings from, from classes. <laughs> from those classes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> classes, and we're starting to see those guys actually get to an age where they're going to be have the ability, have the experience to, to really do some big things for us. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, we put all those pieces together this year and, um, and we can turn things around a little bit more. I mean, eight and five, that's what I expected out of the gate after Duke, I was expecting worse after the turnaround. I was expecting better, you know, UVA stings, the bowl game stings. I know. Same, Notre Dame stings. Yeah. That Notre, Notre Dame, Dame stings. stings because it was there and we let them off the hook as, uh, as, as our boy would Didn't say. Scream. Um, Didn't agree. So, you know, I think, I think the biggest thing is, you know, let, let's, let's not just build on last year. Let's go out and kick some ass and, and show them what the Hokies are all about. I think that's what we need to do. I agree with you. All right. We're going to move on next. Um, sort of the next, you know, this wasn't a big senior class. Only six guys graduated. Um, and really, of the guys leaving, um, senior-wise, really Reggie Floyd was our biggest contributor. I'm going to put Deshaun McLeese in there. Uh, Deshaun could have came back for one more year eligibility. He technically was a senior. Um, and I think he's doing the right thing. He needs to take his shot. Um, just, you know, the way our system runs. Um, but the one guy that kind of shocked everybody by leaving was Dalton King. Um, now, Brian, I'm going to run through this each of them and their potential replacements. What I want you to do is where you feel most comfortable with, you know, your football yeah. uh, knowledge there and where you don't okay. feel comfortable. Um, you know, losing Reggie Floyd sucks. But Devin Hunter's coming in, and we saw him play sometimes at that at that rover position, and my eyes were telling me he looks better than Reggie. Love you, Reggie, but that's just what my eyes was telling me. Um, you know, Dalton King leaving, we have a couple guys – you have Drake Dellis, who is a higher-rated player coming out um, during recruiting class against um, Dalton. You have Gallo, um, had significant playing time last year. James Mitchell um, at that position. Then McLeese leaving. You're kind of looking at a combo of Keyshawn King, who popped several times last year for us, and the transfer from Kansas, Herbert. Um Give me your ranking, Ryan, where you feel most comfortable, where you're kind of feeling shaky as we move on to next season. All right. So most comfortable, I'm definitely feeling uh, feeling Devin Hunter in there instead of uh, Reggie Floyd. I think the biggest thing he's going to need is those consistent game reps against ones. He'll finally get that this this offseason, um, both with you know, spring and also with uh, with fall camp. So I think that's going to be big for him and his development just because the bit, the only thing he doesn't have, I mean, he's got all the tools. He just doesn't have a ton, a ton of game reps 
or get or at least reps against um, you know the ones. So I think him getting a lot of that is going to be the determining factor of how well he does this year. But potential wise, I mean, I, th- I think he could definitely definitely be better than what we saw from Reggie last year. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, I'd say number two, I'm real I'm really tossed up here. I, I think we're going to be okay at tight end, and, I, and I'll say the biggest thing is that. You know, we've got Mitchell as kind of a joker. Um, he's going he's gonna to do it all. He's going to line up in line. He's going to split out. He, he can do those things. He'll even take uh, the uh, the good old jet sweep here from me. So, I mean, there's there's so much that he can do with his talent and his uh, athletic ability that is going to be hard for anyone. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll see um, Drake and, and Nick take up some of the other roles that Keen has, some of the some of the screen game things, um, a lot of the the blocky roles from the H back position, um, some of the inline blocking. I mean, if if they can fill some of that void, we won't miss his output. We'll just miss the fact that we had one guy that can do all those things, a jack of all trades on the yeah. tight end position. So I think that's that's what we'll end up uh, missing the most. But I think by committee we can end up getting all of that production back. Um, running back is the biggest uh, question for me. Um, I don't feel bad about it, but I'm not sure how to feel about it. I think King, with a full off season, getting some extra size on him, you know, you know, full off season in the weight room, full off season practicing. I think that's going to be big for him, and I think you're going to see a big improvement in him. And if he can replace most of McLeese's uh, production. You know, then you've got Herbert coming in as kind of a one-cut bullback that can, you know, when he gets in the open field, he's gonna he's gonna do some do some nice things. And then there's also, you know, we haven't talked about transfers yet, but when we talk about you know Blackshear coming in, being able to line up at running back, being able to line up at uh, at the slot position, being able to do those jet sweeps. Um, get, get involved in the screen game, get involved in the pop pass game. I mean, there's there's a lot of of things that we can do with that. So I'm hoping that between those three guys, along with you know some of the other guys in the depth like Holston, um, that we're going to be okay um, at that position. But that's the one that's the biggest question mark, just because I don't know what Herbert's going to look like in the system. I don't know what Blackshear's going to look like in the system. The only person I've really seen that's going to have significant carries is King. And I'm hoping that an offseason is going to take what he did his freshman year and really, really blow it up. Nice. Um, you know, earlier we were discussing um, the 2019 class, and I want to go back to that because at 2019 class, there are some guys there that, to me, if we don't recruit these guys, I, I, I don't think we're 85 last year. I honestly don't. Um, and, and I just kind of wrote down the names here and kind of how many games they played. And I want everybody to remember every single person on here, with the exception of Sean Crawford, were true freshmen. And we'll say that again, true freshmen. They came straight in and started playing. Um, the first is the interior lineman, Doug Nestor. Doug played 11 games. The only games he missed was BC in the bowl. We had the discussion on the bowl game afterwards. Basically, Valente said they were done. They were tired. And you know what? It's a bowl game. Are we playing for a national championship? Nope. Then let these guys rest. Um, the same with Brian Hudson, starting at center, 11 games. Um, Kavion Robinson kind of came in as a true freshman and 
sort of stole Hezekiah Grimsley's role, um, not only at the slot, but later on in the season as a punt returner. And Brian, he only punted, he only did punt returns for five games. He was averaging 14 yards punt return. Yeah, that's only going to get better you with, with reps, man. That's only going to get better with reps. Heck yeah, man. Um, Gallo, we saw him in there on special teams and some run blocking plays. I think that's going to help. You mentioned it. I think it's going to help with his development. Um, the two big kids from Florida, Pollard and Kendricks, they played all 13 games on the interior. And now by all means, they didn't have a billion tackles for loss, but they looked like they can play at this level. And I think them, again, getting in the weight room, as you mentioned, getting in the weight room, getting technique. Remember, we've got a new defensive line coach, um, two of them to be exact. I think they're going to grow. And then Cross, the JUCO transfer who played in 11 games, I think for him, yes, he was a JUCO, but I think him coming in immediately with those two guys from Florida, I feel more stabilized at the defensive tackle position than I did last year going in. But, I mean, let's just just think about that. How big a role each of those guys played, and they were recruited last year. Yeah. Some of the guys like Nestor, we flipped from Ohio State. He was a top 100 guy. Hudson was another high-ranked guy. And then we found the diamonds in the rough. So, I, that 20, and I think there are some people in that 2019 class that might have caused some of those transfers, primarily the guy from the RVA, Jay Coyote. If I pronounced his name wrong, I apologize. That guy was highly rated and a stud. He didn't play at all last year. A, I think primarily converting from quarterback to wide receiver. But we didn't see him on the field yet with that electrifying speed that we know is legit. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I really even, if I remember back to fall camp, I mean, they knew he was going to redshirt, but everyone was raving about what he was doing at fall camp. So, you know, yeah. I think you're going to see a, a lot of uh, – a lot more from him this year, so I'm, I'm really excited to see what he's going to do. Um, that you know, knowing that you know, he's going to be in, in some role takes a little of the sting of uh, Jacoby Pingy it, uh, hitting the transfer portal there. So, um, you know, like I said, the big hope is that you know Jaden is as advertised, and uh, and we get some some big plays out of him this year. Oh yeah, I agree with that. All right. Um, Next thing we're going to hit up on, guys, is Brian went through and did a little uh, little digging and uh, a little video reviewing of some players here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of lay them out, who we got, he's going to talk about. Um, Brian, by all means, tell them where you're looking at these highlights from. You know, it's like a 247 or rivals. So, so for you guys in the public out there, Listen to what Brian's talking about. Go see these tapes. So, again, helps you correlate to why he's feeling the way he's feeling. Brian, if you're ready, I'm going to start. Um, the top-rated guy in our class, Alec Bryant, weak side defensive end, the number 17 weak side defensive end in the country out of Shadow Creek High School in Houston, Texas. What would you see on him? All right, so Alec Bryant, I was checking out uh, 247 links to, to the huddle uh, highlights for this for this man. And uh, this young man, and the biggest thing I'm seeing, this guy has some some great get off. This guy gets off the line at the snap, as good as I've seen. And he shoots his hands, and that's something you don't see from players. A lot of players at the high school level is being good with their hands, especially at the snap. Does that well? 
Um, the other thing he does well is he's great at finding the play with his eyes. So he gets his hands on the on the lineman and finds where the ball is going and is really good at, at diagnosing that. Um, awesome motor. He's always working to the ball, even when he's being blocked, even when he's fully engaged. Um, you know, the biggest thing I'd say criticism of, of him right now would be when he is getting blocked, when he is fully engaged, he, sometimes he has trouble shedding the block. But he's always working towards the ball. So, I mean, that's the biggest thing I like about him is that he's always working towards the ball. He's not giving up on a play. He's always at the ball when the tackle's made, even if it's down the field. I mean, I can't I can't say enough about this guy. I really like what I'm seeing on tape from him. I got you. Uh, Brian, do you see day one contributor? you think he's going to have some packages? So I, I think he's, um, he's the fall. only one right now that I, I would say with great certainty is probably not going to register. I think there's at least going to be a package for him on pass rush downs or on downs where we're going um, with a mixed front than we normally would um, getting him in there. Because actually I've seen him line up. Um, as, as far inside as a three technique on certain plays just to kind of increase the pass rush ability. So, I mean, he's got enough size even as a, uh, as a true freshman to, to go inside and, and line up on that. So I think you're definitely going to see him do some stuff like that, working in some packages this year. Hey, Brian, do this for uh, the audience anyway, because you're talking three technique, five technique. Kind of give the number and kind of where they are. So when you say these things, um, folks will know exactly where they're talking about. So you just said three technique. Where's the three so technique? The three technique is lining up outside of the, uh, of the guard, so the outside eye of the guard. Um, so generally you're going to be a five or a seven as a defensive end, sometimes a nine if you're doing a more wide nine technique. Um, Five is going to be outside eye of a tackle. Um, seven is going to be outside eye of the tight end if there is one on that side. And then nine is going to be essentially a man wider of whatever the inline guy is on that side, <laughs> depending on what the alignment is. But um, <laughs> like I said, this this guy occasionally lined up in a three technique, so he's lined up inside two interior linemen versus on the edge of one. So... Um, Usually you need a little bit more size to do that, but even with, with his, I think he's uh, six, what, six, three, six, four, 235, 240 as a, as a high schooler, yeah. he's able to, to get in there and, uh, and make that work. So th- that, that's something that's impressive. And like I said, that versatility will, will come in and in, in play for us, I believe. All right. All right. Next we've got here, you want to discuss was Tyree Saunders, uh, Tyree, um, Wide receiver, 124 is his rank. First Coast High School down in Jacksonville, Florida. So keeping that connection going with our recruiting down there. What did you see on uh, Tyree's tape? All right, so Tyree, Tyree is really good at beating press at the line of scrimmage. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like when he goes against bigger physical corners because most high school corners are not big and physical, especially ones you're going to see on the highlight tape on Huddle. Um <laughs> <laughs> that being said, I didn't see him get jammed. I didn't see him get thrown off his route line. Um, now, what he did do a lot of is that he was running a lot of go routes in, in the highlight tape. So I think he's going to be a deep threat. I don't know what his route tree really looks look like because he only ran about three routes on the highlight tape that weren't go routes or skinny posts. <laughs> um, 
So I think I think he's going to be a guy that can take the top off of a defense. Um, though he did show he was a willing blocker um, on some running plays and on a couple screens. Um, and he did have a couple screens himself that he uh, he took to the house on the highlight tape. So I think he's he'll be able to work in the screen game, but I don't know if he's going to be that guy that you're sending over the middle that's going to be able to make a route adjustment in the zone or anything like that. I don't know what that looks like yet, but he can definitely take the top off of a defense. All right. Um, one thing I liked, and, and you know, I like hearing these things about Tyree. Another thing, Tyree was one of the real vocal guys getting recruited, um, very positive towards Virginia Tech, and, and you need those guys in classes. And, and also, I see that, and I think attitude, and I hear you telling me he likes to block. Oh, yeah. I'm sure from you know from coaching and from playing, if there's a wide receiver willing to block, they get on the field a little bit quicker than the guys who don't like that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. If you can catch a ball in your direction and you like to block, you'll probably get some playing time, even if you're not um, outrunning everybody out there. (laughs) And and he's doing that too. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. Next guy I want to look at is wide receiver 163 by 247, Lakeem Rudolph, uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia, Green Run High School. Um, Big 6'4 guy. What'd you see on him? All right. Three words red zone threat. So we shouldn't worry about Hazelton no, either. We We've already got a kid coming in. I don't know if he's going to have an immediate impact this year, but he has the potential to just because he high points the ball well, catches the ball with his hands. The other thing I saw, and this is important when talking about the Hazelton thing, is that he does a good job of throttling and settling in when running through zone coverage, like on slants, digs, things like that. So, um, yeah, I think that's going to be the biggest contribution from uh, from Rudolph is those over-the-middle routes um, and also, like I said, red zone threat, being able to go to, the, go to the corner, run the fade, run the back line. All those things are going to be what you see Lakeem Rudolph do either this year or sometime next year because he's, he's going to fight for that type of role pretty, pretty immediately. He's going to take some of the things that, that uh, Hazleton did and some of the things that we saw uh, Phil Patterson do on a um, – you know, on a breather role when he came in to relieve some of the other guys. Nice. All right, we've got a couple more guys we're going to hit up here um, before we move on to the uh, discussing a little bit about our transfer portal. Um, another guy, Robert Wooten, um, defensive end, ranked 27th out of Stafford High School in Stafford, Texas. Texas woo, woo. BT. I think it's real. What did you see on uh, Wooten here, man? So the biggest thing with him is that He's got a motor that does not quit. He comes at you relentlessly. Um, not as good, good get off as as Bryant. Um, not quite as good with his hands right off the bat as, as Bryant. But what what you do, what he doesn't do there, he makes up for a motor. Man, he's always working, working to get back to the quarterback. Really good presence of knowing pocket depth. So he's not some guy that's going to try to edge rush you to death and then all of a sudden, you know, he's out of the play because <laughs> the tackle ran him upfield. He understands he understands <laughs> where the quarterback is, when to start working back inside, staying in his pass rush lane. So, that, I mean, that's important stuff too. So we don't end up having um, guys running 30 or 40 yards for a touchdown from the quarterback position. I don't know when we've seen that before. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> UVA bowl game, what? 
like every time this year, you felt like there was so, a quarterback yeah, scrambling for yards. That's the type of he's he's disciplined at the position, so he's not someone that's gonna allow a lot of that. At least not from from not on his terms. Um, so that's what I like about him the best is that 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 pass uh, pass rush lane discipline. Nice. Um, we're going to round out here the defensive players, um, and it's another defensive end. Uh, Justin Beadle, Sandy Creek High School out of Tyrone, Georgia, uh, number 52 ranked defensive end. So kind of seeing folks out here, we had a strategy this year. We're loading up on defensive end, you know, three guys in the top 60. Yeah. That's not terrible. <laughs> what, what did you see on the, the, the biggest – Height-wise of these guys, Beatles. He's long and he uses that leverage in the pass rush and he uses that leverage in the run game. Uh, He's another one that uses his hands well and it's good because when he gets his hands on someone, that separation is important. Now I saw it a lot in the uh, in the run game with him being able to get keep that defensive tackle, I mean the offensive tackle, away from him so he could uh, easily separate, make a play in the run game. It's also helpful in. in the pass rush, when he works the when he works the rip, when he's got a pretty good rip rip move to the inside, when he works that, it uh, it comes to fruition because he's got that good leverage. Um, he could stand to stay lower <laughs> coming out of his uh, coming off the snap just because of his height. Um, that's always going to work against him to some degree, but length is going to be good in some cases because I mean this is we're, we're in a uh, you know, teams running a lot more uh, quick passing game. This guy be able to get his hands up, get you know, contact the ball, redirect the ball. I mean, those are those are gonna be big things when you're talking about um, some of the offenses we're playing now. Um, do a quick comparison here because you said something about Beatles um, using his arms, getting down to the ball. Are you saying as far as it goes because of that length, he's better at shedding blocks? He's not might be good as overall as Alec Bryant, but as far as shedding blocks, getting down to the ball without being engaged, do you do you see that as like there's one thing he's better? Than yeah, I mean, I would say I would say that. I think he needs to get some some weight, a little bit more weight on him, and that'll even get better because he'll be able to use you know that power along with that leverage. Um, but yeah, right now because of the way way he does use his hands and the way he, he has that that just that reach right now with with that length i mean he's able to um separate a little bit better once he once he finds where the ball is going in the run game nice all right one last player here and this is a really interesting one that when you sent me over you wanted to talk about especially how deep the running back room is but you wanted to do a little breakdown of Jalen Hampton um, at a Georgetown prep up in Rockville Maryland uh, 69 ranked running back for 247 what did you see on his tape that you know we've already got a room full of running backs what what made him look different to where you feel maybe not this year but sometime in the near future he might be one of those go-to guys I mean I think the biggest thing is kind of his one cut home run potential. Um, I mean, we got we got some of that with King, but I, I feel like even 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 with King, this guy is going to be someone that just with his breakaway speed, but also a little bit more size and power coming in, um, could really fill that role for us. Especially if um, you know we're not going to have Herbert for two three years. Um, I think. You know, well, no, no, Herbert, no, no, Herbert is immediately okay. Eligible. He's the great. No, no. I mean, we're not going to have him. 
for the next two to three Oh, I got what you're yeah. saying. <laughs> <laughs> We're having him this year, but he ain't – unless there's some weird rule that's coming out that we can continue to hold on to yes, players. Yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. I was, <laughs> I was more saying um, this might – he might have a similar type role um, that Herbert's going to fill immediately in the long term. Um, and another guy that I'd be, I would like to probably just pivot a little bit that we kind of got late in the process here, um, Dallin Wright. Um, the wide receiver. Um, I don't know if you, you've got that on your list to talk about, but I, mean, I, I don't. But I know, um, you know, the six one out of I oh, it's a Saluda, South Carolina. Yes, sir. Um, you know, um, insane stat line this year: eighty seven catches, fifteen hundred yards, twenty five touchdowns, and. I was listening to Fuente's press conference a little earlier today, and basically this really laid in the process because he was kind of focused on basketball and literally kind of focused on football this year. And guess what? Literally helped lead his team to a state title down in South Carolina, which is a you know, very good high school football state. Um, but one of those things Coach Fuente talked about, and, and it's probably why we're not discussing him here, is because of now the early signing period, Guys like him in their senior years don't get looked at yeah. as much. So, productivity standpoint, you know, if he comes in and has, you know, half of what he did in his senior year of high school, just in his career here, that would be a win for us as the Hokies. But what did you see that popped maybe even more, Brian? Um, the biggest thing, I mean, I, look, I looked at the tape there on Huddle. Um, this guy's senior tape is some of the best I've seen in a bit. Um, so biggest thing is he's got great vision with the ball in his hands. Um, he has what I call game quickness. So he's not necessarily like Tyree that's going to just blow by you, but when he gets the ball, he's fast and he can move. Um, he's great at making the big play once he has the ball. He's got good vision, but he also can break some tackles. Um, the biggest thing I saw that's going to help, I mean, this, this is going to increase his, day one um, potential is that he's successful running pretty much the entire route tree. Everything I saw pretty much everything from the route tree on his highlight tape. Oh, wow. Um, the only thing I would criticize him on based on that is that he could be a little sharper coming out of his breaks. Um, sometimes he, he would round them off. Sometimes he'd come out of them a little high. Um, but other than that, I mean, they, they used him a lot out of the backfield and quick tosses and jet sweeps. I mean, this guy is, is somebody that I think could potentially come in and make an immediate impact, especially with uh, with some of the positions that we're, we're going to have have to fill now that we've had some departures. Awesome. All right. Well, what we're going to be doing next here, guys, um, is we're going to actually talk about these departures and a couple of the guys we got back. We've talked about Herbert a couple of times already, but we're going to go a little bit more in-depth. All right, so right now, you know, looking at the portal um, for Virginia Tech, um, we have a total of 12 guys currently in the portal. And what I want to do is just run by name and position. Um, and we're going to, we've got a few things to discuss here uh, back and forth. Uh, but let's start uh, running back. We got Caleb Stewart is in the portal currently, um, wide receiver, which was once a position of depth, not as much anymore with. Jacoby Pinckney, um, Dewan Ellis. You guys don't remember Ellis was in the portal significantly earlier this year. Um, Phil Patterson 
Hezzy Grimsley, Damon Hazelton. Um, offensive line, we're looking at John Harris, Joe Kane, Louis Mahota. Defensive line, Robert Portrait of Fourth, um, House Gaines, Nathan Proctor. And, and in the secondary, at the nickel, we have Khalil Ladler. Now, um, of these guys, uh, we've already got six guys who have committed to other schools. So, you know, they're not coming back. You heard the Fuente press conference. You know, it was a big deal about that. <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of those guys were actually – they've been in the portal for a while. So they, they, they kind of either started the year in the portal or entered the portal during the season after the first four games or so. We've had, what, maybe, what, five, four or five in the last uh, month or so since uh, since the bowl game. But uh, most of those guys were already in there at the either before the, the season started or just as uh, as things were wrapping up for that four-game stint to, to start the year. Yeah, and, and sort of things started shaking out when those guys kind of knew, you know, you know, the depth chart, I'm getting further and further down on the depth. If I want to play, I'm going to have to make a move. Um, but let's just look real quick where they're going. Just so again, landscape where these guys are going. Um, Porcher is going over to North Carolina A&T. Um, Mahota going up to St. Francis of Pennsylvania. Um, Joe Kane's heading back to Elon. Um, uh, John Harris going down to Mercer. Um, and the two big ones is uh, Ellis is heading up to Maryland, essentially where he's from. And then Hazleton is going out to Mizzou. Um, Brian, I'm going to throw it to you here. Of all the names, not just the guys who have made the transition to other schools, but of all these names, which one sort of kind of caught you off guard? Uh, the biggest one that caught me off guard was uh, Jacoby Pigney entering in the, uh, in the portal there. Um, biggest reason for that is that, you know, with Hazleton seemingly moving on to a system where he can get more targets as he tries to make a push for a uh, an NFL gig, it seemed like that was going to be kind of the same role that uh, that Pingney could step into and maybe you know take a take a role right away this season. You know, red zone threat, kind of bigger target. Um, I, I thought that might be something that he could do pretty well um, right out the gate, and with him not. Yeah, leaving us now, I, th- I think that kind of leaves a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a hole, but definitely some uncertainty at, at filling, um, you know, some of the stat sheet uh, areas that, that Damon Hazleton filled. So that would be my biggest concern uh, of those guys. Like, most of the other guys were either already supplanted on the depth chart or were far down the depth chart. Um, they were, you know, they were depth guys. They weren't guys that were giving us a lot of game day reps. So, the ones that hurt are either the guys that we expected to give us those game day reps this year or guys that, that were already doing that, like, uh, like Hazleton that were departing. So. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Pickney's the one Pickney was a pretty big pickup last in last year's recruiting class cycle. Um, he was a number three uh, player in the state of South Carolina for two, four, seven. He was a four star guy. So it's one of those things where, we saw him. Oh, he redshirted this year. Okay, this makes sense. When Hazleton, when that was announced a few Fridays ago, I was like, oh, man, this is good for Pinckney. Pinckney's going to probably get a lot more reps. And then he puts his name in. You know, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes with all these guys um, or the discussions they're having, not only with the coaching staff, but with their own families and definitely projecting, um, you know, for NFL guys, if, if you want to make the NFL, 
you can have be six foot four, two hundred and twenty pounds and run a four seven or a four six. Guess what the NFL wants? They want to see it you know, on game day. Yeah. And if you are buried on a depth chart, you're not going to get there. Um, what I did, Brian, and I, I want to I want to get your take on this is I kind of wrote down the three guys I think that we're going to miss the most um, because of kind of what we're doing. Um, I put three as Hezekiah Grimsley. Um, Grimsley had ran that slot role until Tavion Robinson took it over. He was a all-in-all good teammate, kind of a guy you want on your squad. But I, I, I'm just very worried not having that backup at the slot like Hezzy where we know he can come in, he can do it. That that worries me. The yeah. other – my, no, my number two – yeah, let me finish, and then uh, you, you tell me what you think. Number two, I hate losing Khalil Adler. That guy was a rocket nickel two years ago. Again, you can see a good team player. When when Jamar Connor took the role from him this year, he had a couple games where he had to come in and you know help out. I don't see him necessarily – I see him more of – I feel like he could do several things. Clearly nickel backup, but I feel like he could play that rover and free safety – so, again, it hurts the depth on the defensive side of the ball with a proven guy. And, and clearly one is Hazleton. Um, you know, he was, this, he was, you know, second on the team in yards as far as wide receiver goes, led the team in touchdowns. Um, and him leaving is one of those things where he's coming back, he'll get the, he'll get the looks. And, and to be honest, you know, I think he had 34 receptions this year. So that's not a boatload of receptions. Um, he wasn't getting the touches. He doesn't get the touches on the sweeps. We saw his deficiencies across the middle where, you know, he, he dropped a few passes. But as a guy coming back, you would think, well, stay here and work on those. Um, any disagreement with those top three? Are you feeling the same way? Or do you – are you – yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely think? hurting. I'll tell you, the, the biggest thing um, with Hezekiah leaving is going to be that leadership and the wide receiver room. Um, not having that, we're definitely going to feel some of that. I mean, I feel confident that he's still young, but that Trey's going to pick up a lot of that slack. At the same time, you know, it can't be understated having having a guy with that much experience in the room. Um, so losing him, even if it was just going to be in a in a mostly reserve role coming into the season – is definitely going to hurt some. Um, I'm with you on Hazleton. I, like I said, I, the biggest thing I see is that when we started the year with Willis at quarterback, by default we were going to be slinging the ball a pretty good amount. Once that went south and, and Hooker took over, Hooker did well, but Hooker's not going to be throwing um, 30 times a game like we were with Willis. So, you know, obviously there's fewer uh, targets to go around. You've had some younger guys step up, and now all of a sudden Hazleton is not getting the touches he was expecting. So that that hurts. I see, I see why that went down. At the same time, you know, having someone that has experience with, with our personnel would have been big time this year. So I feel like that's definitely going to hurt as well. And, um, you know, your third one that you mentioned there, Ladler, I mean, I don't think we win – uh, UNC without what he did in that game, especially in the overtimes. So, th- I mean, just having that depth and that uh, that ability to have somebody come in 
knows what he's doing, can play multiple positions, the versatility and the skill. I mean, that's going to be hard to replace, uh, even if he's not the guy that's at the top of the depth chart is at his position. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, but but maybe there's guys, you know, I think we've got what J.R. Walker, a couple of these other guys we haven't seen. So for us, it's definitely a worry. But maybe as we get into spring ball, some of those questions will become unanswered. I know we don't have as much access. A lot of people complain about that. I'm (laughs) one of them. I'd I'd like to not have to travel to Blacksburg to see the spring game when other things. As much as we enjoyed going up there, it was nice. It's not convenient to be able to flip on a television or pull up a live feed and just or a replay. Yeah, or replay some highlights so I can see something. Exactly. So we'll slowly start finding out. Um, But, you know, as much as we want to decry the portal, we're losing players. Yeah, we lost a couple guys. But we also, Brian, you you went and looked up these guys and did some research on them. We actually gained two guys who have proven at a Division I football level they can play. And I'm going to look here because we've mentioned his name one time already in the podcast just tell me what you got on Khalil Herbert, the running back, um, grad transferring from Kansas. We got him for this year. What do you see? So the biggest thing I'm seeing, this guy's a, he's a bruiser, but he's got an extra gear. So that that's kind of what you, uh, you're talking about a between-the-tackles guy, but a guy that when he gets past that first and second level can make things happen, get, get those extra yards, break those big runs. Um, the biggest thing I've seen deficiency-wise, he needs to work on patience at the point of attack when running from the shotgun sets, which, of course, you know that's what we mostly run out of. Um, sometimes he gets bottled up in his track and doesn't quite get to um, to where he needs to with the way the blocking gets set up. Um, does a lot better in eye formation and pistol sets, which we don't necessarily run a ton of, obviously. Um but when he's running downhill, his vision is a lot better. Um, so I think that that's going to be interesting to see if he makes any strides in those areas. Um, but, I mean, it's a guy where if it's between the tackles, he gets to the next level, he can make some big things happen. I know everybody's talking about the uh, the BC game being kind of the uh, his highlight reel. Um, where he, he, he ripped off a bunch of big runs against them and had a, had a really career performance. So if he can do a lot more of that consistently with us, then we're going to um, have somebody that we can really depend on. All right, let me ask this because you, you make the point of going from shotgun. Do you think in the offense we run, do we have the capabilities? I'm not going to say going under center for I, but I think we've got the capabilities to take a pistol type formation with Hendon and, you know, some of the stuff we do. Do do you see maybe in spring ball we're we're looking, we're seeing, we're running a little more pistol? Or do you think we're going to, hey, we're going to make him adjust to what Hendon does well? Hendon's won six games. He's lost three by less than ten points combined. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point it's going to be, you know, the coach staff is going to see what they have and see what they can do. I mean, I don't think they're going to say – now we're not doing this because it doesn't fit in our, our our scheme. I think they will, you know, play to some of the strengths of the um, of the personnel. I mean, we saw some of that with even the switch from from Willis to, uh, to when Hendon Hooker came in. I mean, we, it was a differently called game. So I think you might see some of that um, get adapted to fit more of Herbert's uh, Herbert style. I don't know if you'll see a bunch of uh, 
a bunch of those pistol sets, but you might see a, a few a game. And you also might see um, them maybe stagger um, the depth of the running back, even in a shotgun formation. So he can kind of see he has his eyes towards the line of scrimmage a little bit more when he takes the handoff um, versus a more traditional um, either parallel or, you know, one yard stack type thing that you would see with a, a usual shotgun formation. Now, as sad as I was to see Hezekiah Grimsley leave, um, you know, especially with, you know, knowing he's that solid depth piece, it wasn't long after he made his departure that we got the commitment from Raheem Blackshear out of Rutgers. And then I was like, running back, oh boy, we're up to to a thousand now. But then saw some tape, read some stats, and I know you went even more in-depth. This this guy isn't just a running back. This guy is yeah, a Swiss Army knife. That's exactly what he is, a Swiss Army knife. Um, so I watched some tape on this guy. Uh, the biggest thing, I mean, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Darren Sproles. Ooh. A little bit of Darren Sproles. Um, but – maybe even a touch of Percy Harvin in there. Not, I'm not saying total ability wise. I'm more saying skill set. Um, he's got those tools where he can, you know, catch a swing pass, catch a screen. He's going to run some, uh, some slants, some corners, some outs, some digs. I mean, he's, he can run those routes, but he's also going to be the guy that can take the ball out of the backfield from the shotgun um, from on a toss things like that. So he's going to really be a guy that's I think is going to come in and have some instant impact just because of the versatility he has. And he does have speed. So when he, when he gets, gets an opening, he can, he can hit the home run. So I think that's, that's the big thing um, we'll see from him. He really excels. Um, I'd, I'd say even more in the passing game than he does in the running game with those swings and screens and short passes. Brian, do you think he has the ability to play the the Y, or do you think he's strictly a slot? I think he's going to be more of the slot just because of his route tree right now. I don't necessarily see him um, running goes or anything like that. Post, Uh, he's not he's not running a lot of deep routes. He's not doing a lot of the um, the comebacks or anything like that. He's mostly doing slants, things over the middle, things on the outside. Occasionally he'll run a corner, but mostly he's catching swings and screens. So I think he's more going to be a guy that does things like that. He'll be a jet sweep threat as well. Obviously, we run a lot of jet sweeps. I know that's a, a running joke amongst uh, some of the, 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 the Twitter circle there about the jet sweep call. But, you know, if we utilize it, he's going to be a big a big threat in that game. So we're going to see him do a lot of things, uh, but I think mostly from the slide and from the running back position. Well, it's only made fun of when it doesn't work. When <laughs> we run the jet sweep and Trey Turner takes 160 to the house, it's like, oh, uh, that's what we need to do every time. But, <laughs> you know, from obviously being a coach and a lineman, perfect execution on jet sweeps and end arounds and reverses are highly difficult. Well, I mean, we ran a lot of jet sweep at Hamden Sydney as well. So I remember blocking those things. And I remember that. Uh... If, if the defense has the right call on, it's going to be a very ugly play. But if they don't have the right call on, we could take it to the house. So that's kind of – that's the risk-reward with the jet sweep. And there you go again, folks, while we're going to give you some more X's and O's from a guy who actually 
played at a collegiate level and coached at the high school level. Uh, we've discussed now the Virginia Tech transfer portal a little bit for this year. You did some research. Um, we aren't the only program that has these. It, it, no way. <laughs> we're, we're not the only program, right? These other guys, they're transferring too, or are we just the lone exception? Everybody transfers from Tech nowhere else. Well, we've got actually a, a good number just in the ACC alone. If we take a look at it, um, you know, right there with us being uh, Miami with fourteen. Oh, oh, oh um, is that fourteen? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. 14. So they exceeded us. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh gosh. So uh, and that and again, that's that's counting guys. That's not counting guys that have you know put their name in the portal and came back. That's guys that are either still in the portal or have already transferred. Well, how many did second. they have? In, oh, excuse me. How many did they have in the portal that came back? I think they had they had one that came back, and then okay. um, the rest are either still in the portal or have already um, announced where they're transferring. Very nice. So, so what else did we see? Um, what about some of our other competition? You know, Carolina. Um, so, so the biggest ones uh, we got Duke at eleven, FSU at eleven. You know, FSU probably a little different scenario there um, with coaching change, but. Um, you know, Duke sitting there right at 11. I don't hear anyone out there complaining about what uh, David Cutcliffe has done at that program. Granted, they don't have a history of winning like we do at Virginia Tech. At the same time, you know, 11 is still a big number. I don't, I don't think that we're seeing, we're seeing a correlation between number of people in the transfer portal and job quality by the coaching staff or by the, by the team in general. Um, NC State has 10 in there, UNC has 9, Pitt 7, Wake 7, Louisville 7, BC 7. Um, you know, this is not necessarily something that we're, uh, we're saying is an indication of coaching and more just a new normal for the landscape of college football, and a lot of teams are still adjusting to what that means. And some of what we're experiencing – is directly tied to the fact that most of our starters are red shirt sophomores or younger, um, because that's going to mean any guy that's in that same class or younger. And even some of the older guys that are in a grad transfer position are probably saying, let me go somewhere where I can get a year or two of playing time in versus sitting behind this young buck. That's already been, uh, been kind of planted in the starting role. So I think that's the biggest thing we're seeing right now. I mean, even outside of the ACC, you know, Tennessee has 10, Arkansas 13, Michigan 11, Penn State 8. Uh, Penn State had a big number last year as well. Oklahoma's got 12, and Oklahoma was in the playoff this year. Yeah, so, I mean, this is not exactly something that, like I said, it's indicative of where a coaching staff is, how players care about a program. I mean, it's it's just the new landscape of what college football is going to be until some of these programs get adjusted to what it means. Well, well I, I mean, I'm with you on it. I think this is the new normal. Um, and I, even you talking about adjusting, I even think as programs adjust, it's going to stay the new normal. Um, because in in my opinion, I don't I don't think this is hurting college football. Um, if anything, the way I see it is this is potentially helping the non-blue bloods or the non-elite programs. Sort of that like 15 to 40 range, kind of where Tech has been sitting during the latter years of Frank on into the Fuente era. We're not elite, um, but this is kind of helping us because we can go out and say, hey, that kid can play. He's four string there. 
he gets in the portal, let's go recruit him. Where the elite teams can continue to restock five stars, high four stars. I th- what do you think? Do you see it that way, or do you see it differently? It is hurting college football. It's hurting the product that's being put on the field by the programs. I think in the short term we're seeing some ill effects only because people don't know what they're expecting. And it's, it is brand new, and it's scary, and it feels different, and it feels like, okay, well, these kids are quitting on a program, but it's not that. I think we're seeing kids that are saying, okay, some of the things that I had planned on when I came here aren't quite playing out the way I wanted to. Let me see if there's another program, whether Power 5, whether Division 1. You know, a lot of these kids are going to, um, you know, D1A schools, um, you know, transferring to schools like JMU, transferring to schools like William & Mary coming out of uh, a Power 5 school when they're leaving. So, I mean, some of these kids just want to play. They 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 know that their career isn't football, and they just want to get on the field for two or three years. And yeah. I think that that's a good thing for them, and I don't think that's a negative for us. Um, no, I don't that, think I it's think, a negative at all for us. I think the big thing is that it's new and it's adjustment, and we're trying to figure out how to handle these situations and you know how to have honest conversations with the kids about what it means when they put their name in there. And I think we're still figuring that out as, as evidenced by some of the, the comments that have been made and some of the on Twitter and some of the comments that were made by um, Fuente at the, the February 5th, um, <laughs> the February, February 5th uh, interview. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a, uh, it's been an ongoing process and I'm hoping that people start, you know, taking it one, you know, Assessing it one player at a time and not just you know, blanketing, well, if, if a kid's leaving Virginia Tech, it's a bad thing. Agreed. And going back to those comments from Fuente on the February 5th presser, most publicity we've gotten in quite some time from the mothership on Get Up <laughs> that forgot about 30 words he said that actually – would have put it in a better context, but uh, you know they they won't clicks, they won't hits. We're not, you know, we've said it. We know the piece. Us who are fans read the entire transcript and said, "Oh, why is this controversial? This isn't controversial. This is a norm here." So uh, you know, we moved on. The media took it out of proportion. Um, but it, it, I'm going to kind of flip and stay on this subject, although I don't think it's hurting college football, I think it's really going to be hurting high school recruiting a ton because now not so much your higher ranked guys, guys who are getting looks and multiple offers, but more of your guys with one offer, um, just one team likes them because now those guys used to get that offer extended, you know, literally the day of or the day before signing day. That's how we got Luther, Maddie, and Daddy Nicholas. Literally, they were two-star guys, got the offer day before signing day because we had the room still. Those are the guys that I think are going to kind of be in a bad spot because teams are going to be looking to say, yeah, we can take a risk with this guy, but that guy over here can give me depth, and I know he can play. So I, I hate it for those guys who don't get on the radar till late because potentially schools are not going to offer them scholarships 
and they're kind of going to be on the wayside and have to make a decision whether to go to a lower division or go to JUCO. Um, what do you feel about that? Yeah, so – you know, we we had talked about this. I had cited that uh, that Tampa Bay Times article by Bob Putnam yeah. that I had uh, I had mentioned to you. You know, a lot of schools now, because of the transfer portal and the opportunity that it presents for some of the schools, they're starting to hold back their scholarship offers and saving you know between two to five scholarships every year for for transfers. And before it was more one or two. Um, you know, you might have one or two uh, either JUCO guys that get picked up or you know, a, a graduate transfer or something like that, but you didn't have, you know, quite this uh, no holes barred situation that we're, we're having now. And like I said, I think that's the biggest thing that we're talking about with this adjustment, but I think it's definitely hurting some of those, those high school recruits that are on the cusp of getting, you know, a D one offer on the cusp of getting a power five offer. I mean, those, those are the guys that are getting hurt by this because those, late in the cycle uh, offerings are now being held back because, hey, some some uh, former four-star guy might put their name in the portal either right before the deadline or right after the deadline. And, I mean, they want to maximize their potential there, so they're holding back those, those scholies. Yeah, agreed. I'm going to move on uh, kind of talking about the portal itself. And uh, I decided to do some digging because that 2018 portal was so polarizing to Virginia Tech. We'd never seen an exodus like it. You know, people were – the program's falling apart. We're losing all these guys. What's going on? The culture's bad. Well, I dug a little bit and just kind of wanted to see, okay, these guys that left – where did they go? What did they do? Um, I'm not going to hit all of them, but going to hit some guys that I feel were the uh, the biggest names and p- potential impacts on us in the 2019 season um, and part of the 2018 season too. So, um, Brian, I'm going to start with Josh Jackson. Okay. Clearly. JJ. JJ, <laughs> uh, quarterback of the 2017 team, you know, Good, solid season for us. He transferred to Maryland under Mike Loxley. Um, And I kind of feel for J.J. in this case because this is kind of – this is his stat line. Don't cringe. J.J. played in 10 games. His completion percentage was 47%. He had 1,274 yards, 12 touchdowns versus six interceptions. Maryland was three and nine. Now, yeah, Now, I don't, I don't think this is an indictment on Josh at all. I think Josh is a good player. I just think Maryland was a bad team. Um, to me, Mike Loxley has never proven he can be a head coach. If you, I think he may have one of the worst winning percentages as a head coach between <laughs> his time at New Mexico, the interim at Maryland, and last season. Um, but, but I kind of sat here and just wanted to get your perspective because you know, Josh broke his leg at the ODU game. What do you think happens if Josh Jackson stays healthy in 2018? I'm going to retrospect. Retrospect. So, healthy JJ for the whole year. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about where, whether what our record would have been that year or? Yeah. Okay. Where do you think he would have been? What do you think? I mean, we were six and seven. Are we better than that? Are we the same? Are we, you know, where do you think we are? If uh, I mean, I think what JJ gave us that, you know, we didn't get once Ryan Willis came in there is that, 
he gave us a steady hand at the position. He gave us better decision-making in crunch time. He gave us a little bit more of a, a running threat once he got downhill. He wasn't quite as much of a, uh, a speedster, but uh, if, if he got out on the edge, get in the open, he could he could make some things happen with his legs. I think we're at least two wins better, probably if he's healthy all year, maybe three. But at the same time, you know, it, it's it's a hindsight situation. It's a very hard hypothetical to really put put your finger on. But I, I think we're two to three wins better if if we had JJ that whole season, just because of the decision making standpoint in some of those those November and late October ACC matchups where we struggled. Yeah, where sometimes I look at the Notre Dame game and a couple of Willis's turnovers. I don't. Josh was much more, um, much more conservative, much more protect the ball. If I protect the ball, they don't have the opportunity to do anything. Where in the Notre Dame game, a couple of those turnovers really split that game, and I felt like that game sort of spiraled to the pit and the Georgia Tech and the BC games afterwards. Um, right around that time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, I'm going to look at a few more guys here, Brian, and uh, just kind of give you my thoughts on them. Um, Eric Kuma uh, transferred to ODU, the wide receiver. He only played in four games, so he redshirted this year. I'm not sure if that was injuries. Um, I, I, I didn't go that deep, but when I see a guy take four games, uh, clearly he's taking a redshirt. So, 18 receptions, 192 yards, no touchdowns. Um, I think his story is incomplete still. He's got one more year to see what he can do. Um, now, I will say this. One thing I'll, I'll say about Eric Kuma, people tried to get on social media and say he was the cause. He was the guy. Eric Kuma played through a broken hand at Marshall. He yeah. balled that game. No. Yeah, anyone he, bad matching Eric Kuma just doesn't – is not aware of what was going on in the program uh, and what was going on with him personally. Um, exactly. So that, that's been my, my take on Eric Kuma. I mean, I think he did what was best for him given the circumstances and given the amount of young talent that was coming up behind him. I think he did the best for him. But I don't I don't think at any point I questioned his toughness or his willingness to, to go out there and compete for a win. Yeah. Um, another big name that left that last year was Sean Savoy, wide receiver. Um, he went to Maryland, um, Josh Jackson. Um Switched to defensive back part of the way through the year last year, and as of late November, he was not on that team and back in the portal. Um, my heart always breaks for Sean. Sean went through personal tragedy that he did share, you know, kind of with the public um, through social media. Um, and when he transferred up there to be close to homes from the D.C. area, it, it made sense. It's like, yeah, you go handle that business. You're still in D1 school. Um and, and I'm hoping that's given him some stability and hopefully where he lands next can really help him. Because that freshman year with him, the promise he showed in that slot role, how hard he played, and the one lasting memory for me, you remember that BC game? Yeah. He, he killed them single-handedly. They did not know how to stop him. He had like nine catches for 140 yards and a touchdown. They, they were just like, what do we do? <laughs> And he's out there just stroking them. So, I, if, so Sean Savoy, hope he lands somewhere. Hope, you know, the personal life is getting better. Because that, that was a good kid. And I think circumstances he had to leave, I don't think it's anything we did. I just think he knew what he was, uh, what was going on in, in real life. And uh, he made that decision. Uh, 
you, you let me ask you this: What was the most controversial transfer of last year? Controversial. Controversial. Uh, are we talking about Draymond Hill? Oh, 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 without a doubt. <laughs> any Virginia, any player that walks across the stage at graduation and throws up the U, it's so controversial. <laughs> oh my God, good player too, coming out of you know high school, high rated. Um, some people felt like he was the best technique defensive end because that was like the Josh Sweat class and stuff. Um, now for us, we. we Nobody knows what went on that locker room at ODU, but the players and the coaching staff. We don't know. Um, maybe one day it'll come out. I'll, I'm going to guess not. I feel like both, you know, the staff, the players, and Trayvon closed that book. Um, and if he went down to Miami, boo. But he had a solid season, 27 tackles, nine and a half tackles, lost four and a half sacks. Um, had a solid game. You know, I think he had four tackles, a tackle for loss, and a sack. When we played him, we beat him. Yeah. But, you know, that's the one no one's ever going to know. That's the one where we could sit here and, like, write a story and everyone, whatever way you go, you could believe it. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll say this about him. I mean, obviously the exit wasn't graceful at all. Um, but as far as his presence on Twitter and his back and forth with some former players, it seems like nothing but love, and you know you even caught him, uh, um, you know, giving giving the Hokies some props after uh, we had our turnaround after after Duke there. So, you know, I don't I don't think there's necessarily love lost with 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 the fans or with the with the players. I'm I think it's more of a, it was just something happened in the locker room, and like I said, I don't know if we'll ever get the full story on it, but you know, it seems like. Other than uh, than throwing up the U at graduation, um, <laughs> there's uh, there's there's nothing but love coming back to uh, Virginia Tech, even though he's a you know he's a hurricane now. So, all right, I got three more guys I want to hit, um, and then we'll move on. Remember Cam Good's situation in the summer of 2018? Yeah, about that. <laughs> Um, oh my God, releasing the scholarship like at the end of July in 2018. And then he comes and comments, the, dis- the split wasn't mutual. And you're like, oh crap, what the heck? No one knows. Again, same like Trayvon. Some people claim it was probably he was promised playing time and he came out of camp out of shape. We don't know. He set out. He went to UCF. He played six games last year, seven tackles as a redshirt freshman. And it is looking like he is going to be a part of their two deep. Um, For us, it really hurt 2018 because I think we all looked at his size and thought he's going to be on the two deep for the defensive tackle. It's not just going to be Ricky and Jared up front. He's going to be in there helping. In that year, it clearly showed, though, that we missed missing and letting him go we could not stop the run. Couldn't and stop the run. We had players constantly injured at the position. We were putting in guys that had never seen reps and guys that in some cases probably wouldn't have seen reps other than garbage time. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that, that's, what, that, that's what we end up working with there. I mean, he was definitely somebody that I thought was at least going to see some rotational duty, um, you know, year one, probably not going to redshirt, going to be a guy that's going to, going to be in there in a run-stopping role just because of his size. And, you know, whatever happened um, definitely put us in a bind um, at that position, especially for 2018, but even to a small degree in 2019 because 
some of the uh, the changes that we made to uh, the recruiting cycle was meant to plug up <laughs> um, the the big depth issue we had at that position, and part of that was due to to Cam uh, changing course there. It, yeah, and and it, and it and it stunk because I mean, you think I don't think we take the two guys out of the Mississippi JUCO if Cam's there, maybe one, not both. Um, although you know. Crawford came in immediately, showed he was an impact guy. So, you know, some things work out. And clearly those other two kids from Florida, they're, they're doing it as well. So, uh, yeah. Um, I'm going to say this name and then just kind of laugh and move on. Bryce Watts, cornerback who went to UNC, who's from New Jersey, who in his – if you remember the, tw- the, the tweet, Brian, it was, yeah, I, I need to transfer to be closer to home and think, oh, great, cool, Rutgers, maybe even Penn State – Maybe Maryland. I'm going to Carolina. Wait, wait. Hold, hold on. But that's anything. Any comments on that, gentlemen? <laughs> I mean, are we talking? Is is this the Mac Brown factor? Like, what uh, is, is is that the only thing that was at play there? Trey um, Bly, maybe he wants to uh, put on a good face before he drops the hammer. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Who who knows? And but I think for us, we might have. We got lucky on that because I think having Jermaine Waller and, uh, you know, Caleb, they're clearly out. There's clearly a class in themselves. So maybe him leaving opened the doors for both those guys and boom. Last guy I want to touch because I can remember this guy playing, Rico Kearney. Um, I feel like this is just an attrition loss. We're so deep at linebacker. Um, you know, that first year he played, you saw the flashes. Um, but – you had Dax, you had Rayshard, Tisdale was in there, Keyshawn Artis, who's red shirting. He was I mean, we had, a, we had Dylan in there oh, rotating at oh, places yeah. too before he got uh, got injured. So I mean, he got injured. We we have four so, or five guys in those legit. those two linebacker positions. There are only so many um, guys that can rotate in. Yeah, and I'm I'm also wondering besides the depth chart. Um, he's from Jacksonville. He went to UCF. Not that far of a drive. Maybe one of those things. Well, I'm not going to see as much playing time here. You know, if I'm not going to see a bunch of playing time, I'd rather be playing somewhere close to home. And and that's going to be those guys. So that's sort of the guys I see that wait. The way our opinion goes, I look at all of them. You know, I, no one went out there and, you know, shattered records or played to a All-American level. I mean, don't get me wrong. Losing Trayvon Hill at defensive end was hurting. Losing Josh, I think, hurts because having continuity quarterback would have been better. But overall – I think the guys that left for whatever reason, as much as people were screaming, everything's on fire, we're going to be terrible, I think a lot of people were wrong. Yeah, and I mean, I think we're probably going to see some similar type situations uh, you know, with the guys that are in the portal now, both the ones that have left and, the, and those that are still looking for, for landing spots. I mean, you know, there's probably going to be one or two of those guys that end up being difference makers on another team but most of them are probably either going to go to, you know, a smaller school or, you know, non-power five school so they can get some playing time and, and, and contribute there. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think you're going to see a ton of these guys transfer power five and end up being difference makers. I think Hazleton's probably maybe the exception to that. Um, maybe Jacoby Pinckney. Um, 
but other than that, I mean, I think it's going to be similar to the things that we've seen with with the last couple here is that we'll, we'll see guys that that hit the portal that go somewhere that's a good fit for them where they think they can get more playing time or have more visibility um, or is just closer to home and works for them. Um, Curtis, I did want to bring up something with you, though. Um, I know the the big buzz on Twitter right now is the Sons of Saturday podcast with uh, John Yetzi. <laughs> yeah, shout out Billy Ray, <laughs> Pat Finn, and Grayson. That was awesome. Um, for a lot of the naysayers on Twitter, I think Letzi said a lot of things that maybe people were wanting to hear from the head guy. But it kind of opened some eyes up to what happened with this, you know, 2020 recruiting class. Um, I I just think it's insane. I mean, Brian, you work at a major university here in the state. I work for a, you know, Forbes Forbes 100 company. And when you're talking about what the thing with Chuck Canner. Yeah. Like, that dropped my (laughs) jaw. That that blew my mind, man. I can't imagine – someone with that level of influence on the recruiting cycle being the only guy that knows the trade secrets. <laughs> well, he's the, 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 he's the only guy with the notes. I might not know all the trade secrets. I mean, in the position I do, but you know, we're kind of required to document things. Yeah. You know, in, in, in my industry, it's compliance stuff, but we've got to document because who knows when, you know, my kid's sick and I got to be out two days. If I don't have my files documented, People are like, what's going on? And in this case, saying he's the only one that had the notes, you're, you're kind of wondering why didn't anybody within, hey, you know, John Letzi, I mean, I think Letzi, what, he would have been like, what, 1920 at the time? I think that's about the range he's working in there. Somebody didn't just say, hey, you know, you think we should have these notes too so you can start teaching us? And ugh. Yeah, I, just, I, I can't imagine the scenario where, you know, there, there, there's one knowledge holder and there's there's no one that can step in and do at least 80% of the job if that one person departs or something else happens, you know, what, whatever it may be. Um, <laughs> there should at least be somebody in, in that organization within that unit of the team that at least knows how to do 70 to 80% of what, what Chuck was doing on a day-to-day basis or at least have the notes to try to learn on the fly. Um, exactly. So, yeah, that, that was pretty wild to see that. Another thing, um, and Brian, I know you kind of looked into it. I mean, we're 16 years behind on the recruiting department in reality compared to the top-notch, you know, compared to your elite programs. And now – We're understand- five years behind, like, programs like UVA and, I mean, yeah. the, the non-elites. <laughs> the the, yeah, the non-elites. <laughs> I know. We're, so we're behind in that aspect, and people are, you know, kind of asking, um, you know, what can we do to get there? Well, money's going to be a big thing. I do truly even more believe once that came out, I think that was the play with the Baylor stuff. And, I mean, because if he's able to go there and say, this is what they're offering me recruiting wise, can we get three-quarters of that? Yeah. Because, you know – well, now you've got, got it coming from the head coach that, hey, this is what is going on at another program, not just, um, you know, as, as John was saying at the uh, at the recruitment team uh, you know, retreat, um, you know, documenting the number of people that are there from each school. That's that's, you know, that tells you a story, but that doesn't tell you the whole story. But 
you know, you go and get a, a bona fide offer from another power five program and they're telling you this is the recruiting resources you're going to have. That says something. It does. Um, but that, that interview is definitely insightful here with uh, John um, and the Sons of Saturday. It was really, again, eye-opening. Um, and I think if you – and some people can say, well, he was just – he was an interview. He was saying what people wanted to hear. I, I, to me, you listen to John's voice and the way it cracked a couple times about things. He's an alumni there. My, uh, Dathorn's an alumni from Tech. I don't think these guys are going to sugarcoat anything. Because the goal, they even said it, and John said it on that podcast, and it's the truth. Can this guy help us beat Clemson? Because for the ACC, that's the hurdle. Yeah. Got to beat Clemson before you can think of anything else. And I know a lot of people are like, well, just win the Coastal again, and then it'll be okay. Well, that's one small incremental step. And clearly, if you saw 20, you know, 2016, we were there. Yeah. I think I think we have a coaching staff. You you can misline them with their personalities. Um I know Bud was part of that coaching staff back then. I think we've got a coaching staff and to me we've seen it beginning of year, bigger games, bowl games. These guys know how to game plan better. And and, and I love Frank Beamer, but how many times did we see that first game of the year? So many things go wrong. Boise State, I just the bad snaps, the terrible play calls, that hurt me. And then I go look at like the West Virginia year. Yeah, I mean and it was it, like light years. The bowl games. I mean, I know we've lost two bowl games in a row, or three in a row, and that sucks. But if you take a look at the game plans, think about the Oklahoma State game. They weren't going to get that ball. Peoples and Josh Jackson don't. Uh, don't muddle that fumble, mesh that fumble up. They get in, we win that game. Against Marshall, why – or not Marshall, excuse me, Cincinnati. We're at the goal line. Why are we going under center? <laughs> <laughs> the game plans worked against one of the better pow- or group of five schools. And then same with this year. The game plans were in place. So, I mean, I, I think the coaching staff and the stuff we have there, I, I think – I think we've got the right coaches. I think we need better recruiters. I think that's been addressed. I think maybe in a future episodes we talk about some of those new guys. Yeah, I think the big thing that we're seeing is I think we're starting to maybe put some things in perspective. I mean, the the goal of everyone is to get get back into an ACC championship, to get to a national title, to put Virginia Tech on the map and put the trophy in the case. If that's not what you're about, then you're probably at the wrong place. At the same time, you've got to put those wants and those desires into perspective of the reality of the landscape of college football. And a big thing of that is money. And I don't think that we're ever going to be Alabama or Texas or Ohio State in that department um, or Clemson or Florida, but I don't think we need to be at that level, but I think we need to at least be at the top 40 level in those departments. If we're, if we're going to truly compete for a national title, um, national championship, I just think it's, you know, at some point, if you've got more resources, if you've got more boots on the ground, if you've got more people making calls, you got more people doing things, recruits notice, and they're going to start trending those directions. 
and until we catch up a little bit, I mean, we've, we've been putting, putting out, you know, 2020 aside, we've been pulling in, you know, top 30 classes with top 80 recruiting department. So <laughs> that's good ratio. <laughs> that's a good turnover. Yeah. So <laughs> imagine if we, if we put, you know, increase that by 30% or 40% in that department. Let's, let's see if we can get, you know, consistently in the top 20. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that's, you know, I think more, it, it's not a, we didn't hear a lot of good information from John. It was eye-opening information from John. Um, yeah. Things that explain some of what we've been seeing. So it wasn't all positive, but it was all, hey, we're working on it. We're, we're moving in the right direction. Help us out. Agreed. All right. Now, as we close the show down today, I'm going to make a quick hit here. You guys listen to the intro and the outro music. Um, that is by one of our lifelong friends, uh, Brian, once again. I went to elementary school with Jason, new middle, high school, college. Yep, yep. His name's Jason Long. He actually lives in the New River Valley. Um, the cuts we're using this week um, is off his Exit Wounds album from 2015. Check him out on Spotify, iTunes. Um, he's been gracious enough to let us uh, use this music without charging us. Gracias, Jason. I hope you listen to the podcast. (laughs) And one last piece. Brian, there's somebody that all of Hokie Nation should be thanking because the bad look that we got seven days ago. Who do we want to thank at the end of this broadcast? Well, I want to give a big and huge shout out to Mel Tucker. Because Mel Tucker pulled a little okey-doke out there in uh, Colorado. And now... After Baylor, don't look so bad. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. So, Hokie fans, we hope you enjoyed this first episode. My name is Curtis Wilson. I'm Brian Siegler. Y'all have a nice one. Let's go. Hokie. Okay.